Hey, so my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And uh, I wear a lot of different hats here at Renaissance. Uh, and probably the hat that I am uh, the most proud of is that I am a dad raising two boys here at Renaissance. And um, every single night when I pray for my kids, uh, I pray that in the same way they know me as father, I pray that one day they would get a chance to know God as real father. And that one day, hopefully in uh, 60 years from now when I'm no longer here, uh, that they would have a real deep abiding relationship with Jesus. And so we've been in a lot of conversations with our kids director here, Tanya Villardo, uh, who's done an amazing job with all our kids, about what it is, like how do we as parents talk to our kids about faith? And what are the conversations that we need to be having to help mold them and shape them and give them an opportunity to respond to the goodness of Jesus? So we are really excited that on May 22nd, uh, we are having something called Rooted Conversations. Now, Rooted Conversations are our attempt to sow seeds in our kids' lives that will hopefully blossom in the future. This is a class for parents to take with their children. So if you have an elementary school age child, for example, this would be a class for you and your child or children to take together. And it's a facilitated conversation with a, with a ministry leader, with their, your, your kid's small group leader, and also you about questions of faith and how, what is the gospel and what does it mean to follow Jesus for them in their age. Now this is the biggest no pressure of no pressure classes of, uh, that can exist. We are really hoping to sow seeds in our kids' lives that will hopefully blossom one day into a giant tree of real abiding faith. So on May 22nd, you would have to register for it because we are ordering supplies um, for the conversation. Uh, we have books to give to our kids, and that's going to hopefully equip us as parents to have more conversations in the future. And you can register on our website, and Tanya will be sending out an email to all the parents who are in our system. And uh, the hope is that you would come to church on the 22nd at 10 a.m., and then at 11.30, you would go up to the library upstairs and have this conversation. So we're really hoping and praying for that day and expecting God to just do some really amazing things in sowing the seeds in our kids' lives. Uh, my wife will be there with my, uh, I guess at that point, he'll be seven years old. Uh, he'll be up there with my, with my wife, and uh, we're really hoping and praying that some seeds could get sown. So really excited for that. Please look out for that, uh, and you can register on the website for that as well. It's on our connection page. All right, so let me pray for us before we get into today's message. Uh, God, our Father... Uh, I am grateful just for the opportunity. Uh, Lord, I pray that we would realize and get a glimpse today of how great you are. God, you are greater than our mistakes. You are greater than our failures. You are greater than our limitations. You are greater than our inabilities. You are great. And Lord, we worship you and we hope that, that our eyes and our attention would be on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So one of the dopest things about being a pastor is that I get a chance to have a conversation with so many people about life and faith. And it doesn't matter where I'm at. I could be in a laundromat. I can be in a bar. I could be anywhere. And once people find out that I'm a pastor, uh, we usually start having conversations about life and faith. And one of the things that I've uh, really appreciated is just how grateful I am that people would trust me to have these conversations. But sometimes people ask me some like really good questions. When I'm at church, I feel like people have church conversations with you. When I'm out, people have sometimes realer conversations. And I was talking to somebody one time, and they asked me a question that kind of stopped me in my tracks. I didn't know the answer for it then. They asked me, have you ever wondered if you're following Jesus or something you just want to believe? 
And I was like, that's a really good question. We need more wings if we're going to answer this. Um, but have you ever wondered if you are following Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible, or if you are following something that you just want to believe? Now, one of the indications that you are in a real relationship with the God of the Bible, one of the ways that you can know for sure that you are following Jesus and not something that you want to believe is if the God that you are serving, the Jesus that you are following, contradicts you early and often. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but the imaginary Jesus, the Jesus of my imagination, I love him. He's great. He never wants me to do anything like radical. He's like, ah, that's a little bit too much. You don't got to do all that. He never wants me to do anything but just be a little bit nicer. He doesn't want me to be like really generous. He just wants me to fly comfort instead of first class. You know what I'm saying? That Jesus is really just me in camouflage. But if you were to ever read the New Testament, pick any gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you were to ever read any New Testament gospel, one thing you will notice very quickly is that Jesus is like constantly confronting people. Jesus is confronting religious, religious outcasts. He's confronting the religious elite and everybody in between. He's constantly in other people's faces, showing people that their way is just off completely. Now, he does it graciously and lovingly with the right intentions. But whenever people encounter Jesus, they like never stay the same in Scripture. So one of the ways that we'll know that we are in a relationship with the real Jesus or we are on the right track to follow the real Jesus is if this Jesus straight up contradicts you and pushes you to do things that you would never have done on your own. There's a scripture in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. It says like this. This is God talking. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Now, if it's true that God's thoughts about things, pick any situation in your life, are not your thoughts, then to follow him, and if his ways are not your ways, then to follow the real God means that he is going to constantly put you in situations that you would never have done it this way other than the fact that you are following Jesus. Now, this scripture that we're about to hit today is one of those things for me, that left to myself, I would never do this. We're in a series on the Beatitudes, and we're looking at statements from Jesus about what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean for you to be in right standing with God? What does it mean for you to be a follower, a faithful follower of Jesus? And Jesus gives eight statements about what the blessed life looks like. And this is the one that got all up in my face and uh, shook me around a little bit. And it comes in Matthew 5, 9. It says this, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, really quick so we can all get on the same page, uh, a peacemaker is a person who restores peace between people. Somebody, one who, who works for peace. So implicit in the definition of a peacemaker is that this is something that is extremely active. This is not someone who is keeping the peace, but someone who is making peace. So it is active, it is intentional, but Lord knows it is not easy. Here's where we're going today. The reason peacemaking is so difficult is because we are better at dismissing issues 
in disregarding people than we are at being peacemakers. We are way better at dismissing issues and disregarding people than we are at being a peacemaker. Now, for me, this one is very easy for me to do, to dismiss issues um, in the hope of self-preservation. When someone does something or says something, and I'm like, oh, yeah, it's cool, it's not that big of a deal, or someone apologizes for having done something, you say, oh, don't worry about it, no big deal. When in reality, like narrator, it was a big deal. It was a very big deal. It was something that bothered me. Now, I've told this a number of times that um, I am in active recovery for being a people pleaser, and sometimes I slip out of sobriety and go back to my old ways, where for whatever reason, like I, I, in my brain, I'm having a conversation. I'm like, Jordan, you know this bothers you. Just say something, and then I don't. I don't actually let people know that something really did bother me. Like I really felt dismissed or I really was bothered by something. And this happens in close relationships with my wife. Uh, this happens in just regular conversations with people that I know and friends where I'm just so tempted to downplay the reality of a situation, trying not to uh, make a stir or make a mess out of something that I figure like, you know what, I'll just swallow it. It's not that big of a deal. And it's such a, such a crazy thing that this, like, peacekeeping is such a false peace. Like, it's not a real peace. And for two reasons, um, the crazy thing is, whenever I'm doing this in order to, like, for self-preservation, I end up making myself miserable. Because, like, when somebody does something that bothers me and I don't say anything about it, I still think about it. And I think about it for months. I'll be in the shower, like, six months later, like, yo, I can't believe them. They got some nerve. So in the, in the goal of self-preservation, I end up making myself miserable. I would have been so much more free if I'd said something at the time, if I actually uh, didn't project a false piece that everything was okay. So number one, it really does, in a hope of self-preservation, it actually doesn't preserve us at all. It makes us terrible. Number two, it doesn't solve anything. The people close to you, just think about the people who are close to you right now, who they've done something against you, and they've never apologized, you've never talked about it, are you closer as a result of that? Like, is your relationship better because you ignored it? One of the things that I've learned in my own life is that closeness and real connection is oftentimes on the other side of conflict. Closeness and connection in your life is on the other side of conflict, that if it's done well, if you move through conflict really well, if you commit to being a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, you will actually have better, much better relationships with people because you'll actually get to the bottom of things. Um, and during our relationship series we've done uh, in the fall, uh, we had a lot of different quotes about our emotions. And God has given you not just a brain. God has given you a heart. Your brain thinks, but your heart feels. Your heart sometimes has great positive emotions, like happiness and joy, like how I felt when the Nets lost. <laughs> I'm a hater. I'm a Knicks fan. I'm a hater. I'm an old school. I'm sorry, y'all. Here we go. <laughs> and your, your heart also has negative emotions, sadness and anger and pain. Now, here's the truth about your emotions that we discovered in our Real Love series and something that I want you to take to heart. God has given you beautiful emotions, and your emotions are like children on vacation. You can't put them in the driver's seat or in the trunk. 
You definitely don't want to put them in the driver's seat and be a person who is emotion-led. We want to be Jesus-led people. So we don't want to put them in the driver's seat. At the same time, we don't want to put them in the trunk to, to drown them out so we don't hear what they're saying. So we want to make sure they're in the car, that we can hear them. We can ignore a little bit, but we don't want to treat them like um, they are either in control, and we certainly don't want to neglect them. And when you're a, a peacekeeper, someone who's like keeping this, this false peace, all you're doing is putting your emotions in the trunk, and it's not going to serve you or the other person well. So sometimes I'm in search of, of, of false peace, and uh, I've really been confronted with this. You know, the, the commandment in Scripture that says, thou shalt not lie. Like, that's one of the ten. There's like ten things early on that God was like, yo, these ten joints, don't do any of them. Lying is one of those ten things that across every faith, every culture, dishonesty is frowned upon. It's a sin in almost every religion, if not every religion. And what are you doing when someone asks you a question and you downplay it? You're lying. You're bearing false witness. You're not telling the truth about how a situation really is. And if we're lying, if we're not being honest with who we are and how we, God has wired us, if we're not telling the truth, man, we're just not going to get God's best in our relationship, and certainly we're not going to be peacemakers, and we're not going to be able to enjoy the blessed life that Jesus is talking about. So on one end, um, it's really easy to um, dismiss issues. But on the other end of it, we're also very prone to disregard people, especially people you didn't really like from the beginning. So quite honestly, when I was thinking about this scripture, I thought about why it's so difficult for me to be a peacemaker sometimes. And it's just very simple. If I don't like you and you do something that I don't like, I don't ever want to talk to you or hear about you ever again. That's just how I feel in my, in my sinful, fleshly nature. If someone has done something that I don't like and I already didn't like it from the jump, I have no desire inside of me to do anything good for you. You go your way, I go my way. I won't say nothing about you. I won't ever talk your name up again in life. I want nothing to do with you. What if God treated you like you treat other people? How would that work? Would you want people to treat your kids like that? Is that how you want to be treated? That if you were in the wrong, if you were going astray, that someone would say, whatever, that's on them. One of the marks of a Christian one of the marks of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully is to be a peacemaker. Here's what we see in the scripture, um, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. It says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, so someone is doing something wrong, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, it is a very dangerous thing to disregard people for a number of reasons. The biggest reason is that it is impossible to love God, to follow Jesus, unless you love people. And to love people is to not know the right thing. To love people is not to be on the right side of the issue. To love people well means that if you see someone who is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. And one of the reasons peacemaking is so hard is because we're so quick to dismiss issues and to disregard people. But it is a dangerous thing 
to disregard people who are made in God's image. There's a, a concept in theology. It's called the Imago Dei. It's Latin. I don't know why people and theologians talk about this one term in Latin all the time, but it basically just means the image of God. And in its very simplest state, it means this, that every single person, every single person, regardless of anything about them externally, they have an irreducible value and glory in their life because they are made in the image of God. And how could you disregard someone made in his image? Wouldn't that also be disregarding the, the one in whose image they represent as well? You know, one of the things I, I like to do um, after service is uh, to go in the hallway and to, uh, you know, I grew up old school, Black Baptist Church, Shiloh Baptist Church, and you had the preacher line. Everybody had to go past the preacher after service and say something nice. You can't say like, yeah, you can't say, oh, that was a decent sermon. It was okay. You got to say, oh, that was good. That was, that was deep. I don't know what you're saying, but it was deep. And um, imagine you were on a line to talk to me after service. And out of the corner of your eye, you see my kids on the stairs. Now imagine I preached a sermon that you were like really deeply moved by, and you really wanted to tell me how grateful you were for God using me to speak into your life. But as you're online waiting to, hear me, waiting to give me a compliment, you see my kids on the, on the stage or on the stairs doing something dangerous that is likely gonna get them hurt. And what if they get hurt? Do you think I would wanna receive your compliments after you've disregarded my children, made in my image, what do we do every single Sunday? We come to church singing, God, how great you are. Sing with me how great, how great you are. We get all emotional thinking about the greatness and the goodness of God to give God the praises and the glory, which he deserves. How could we do that if we are disregarding people? So much so, Jesus says, if one of you comes to the prayer meeting and you have an audit against your brother, leave your prayers there. Go make up with your brother and then come back. It is impossible to disregard people made in God's image and not be disregarding the one in whom their image represents. Not just disregarding them, but sometimes we're not peacemakers because we, we actually wanna do harm to them. We wanna, we wanna mar their image. Uh, if you were to go to my parents' house on the fireplace, there is a, a picture of my grandparents and one of my grandma, Frankie, um, and uh, an amazingly sweet woman. I learned in life uh, a lot of what it means to persevere from the people who went before me. When you think about um, the challenges that my grandmother had, for example, growing up in Ripley, Tennessee, being a sharecropper, and what it, her dream to, to move and to create opportunity for her son that would change the destiny of our family, uh, all that my grandmother meant to me. Uh, and that picture of my grandmother is just a picture. It's just a five by seven image. It's not actually her. But what would happen if you came to my house and you took out a Sharpie marker and you drew the little devil horns on her ears and you blacked out her teeth um, uh, with, with a marker. I hope you could catch because you would definitely catch some hands. <laughs> How can you mar the image of, some, of an image and not be marring and disrespecting the image of whom that person represents and whom that image is meant to represent? How could we mar the image of God's people made in God's image and not be disrespecting God himself. So this thing about being a peacemaker is very, very serious. We are not meant to dismiss issues or to disregard people, certainly people made 
in God's image. But if we were to keep it all the way live, the reason I still don't want to do it is because I don't like to die to myself every day. It feels better to ignore people that I don't like. It feels, oh, somebody felt that. (laughs) But the call of discipleship, if you want to follow Jesus, here's what he says. This is not what I'm saying. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, if anyone wants to follow me, if you have a desire, if you want to follow me, let him deny himself or herself, take up his cross daily and follow me. People don't take up their crosses to go get ice cream. They take up their crosses to be crucified, to die to themselves. Jesus says to follow him is to die to yourself, not every Tuesday, not every other week, but to die to yourself daily. And when I was reflecting about this text, I was just really so confronted by the fact that I really don't want to do this. And in some ways, it's kind of purifying what it means to be, for me to be a follower of Jesus. For me to be a really great follower of Jesus, it's not me preaching a great sermon. It's me dying to myself and following him in ways that I don't want to do. And I think there's something purifying about that in our life where God calls us to just follow him beyond our comprehension, to accept him not just as Savior but also as Lord and say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you're taking me. If you're taking me to be a peacemaker, then so be it. I'll follow you. And that's one of the ways that we know we are in a relationship with the real Jesus. Other times it's not because... I don't want to die to myself. I think it's just because I think in my head, although I, I, I should know better by now, I'm, my understanding of maturity is like all out of whack. What I think it means to be mature means to have a lot of personal piety and to know the right things, to be on the right side of every issue. But in the Bible, it does not mention or measure maturity just by having a lot of personal piety or by knowing the right things. It includes that for sure, but it also extends it well beyond to what does it mean to love your neighbor. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. There's a scripture in 1 Corinthians 13. They read a part of this at weddings. They, be, they skip over this part right here. And it talks about what love really is and how important it is. And here's what Paul says to this church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was known for having all of these amazing gifts and his celebrations. And Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. But check this. He says, but yo, if I have prophetic powers and I can understand all of the mysteries and I have all knowledge, and if I have all faith, not some faith, so as to remove mountains, but if I have love, if I have not love, He says, I am nothing. This one is the illest one. He says, if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I am nothing. Paul would tell Mother Teresa, if you did 40 or 50 years working with the poorest of the poor in in all of your ministry labor, if you didn't have love, then none of it would have mattered. If you understand everything If you can speak with angelic languages, if you don't have love, Paul says, you have nothing. We need to keep what it means to love people as a metric in how we are developing to be made in God's image 
what it looks like to be a mature follower of Jesus. Yes, it includes learning. Yes, it includes knowing things. Yes, it includes personal piety and following Jesus with your lives. But it also includes loving people well. And wouldn't you want someone to come after you if you were wrong? Wouldn't you want someone to love you and bring you back into right standing with them and with, with God? The last reason I think we really struggle with um, peacemaking is because we're called to do peacemaking gently. So in the scripture in Galatians 6, it says, um, if anyone is overtaken in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore a person with a gentle spirit. And I think culturally, we misunderstand, we grossly misunderstand what does gentleness mean. Here's what gentleness means. Gentleness does not mean doing nothing. Gentleness does not mean excusing a wrong. Gentleness does not mean calling a wrong thing right. That is not gentleness. Gentleness is this. It is removing all unnecessary force to accomplish a godly task. Gentleness is removing all, not some, unnecessary force to accomplish a godly task. So over a couple years ago, I had um, a, a sabbatical, and um, we went away for, I think I was away for uh, 10 weeks with no work, and my goal was to watch a bunch of terrible 90s movies. And um, it's probably very problematic for a lot of reasons. Don't tweet me about this. One of my favorite movie series is Die Hard. Um, I love the Die Hard series, and I watched that and a bunch of other terrible 90s movies when I was on sabbatical. And I think one of the things that I was laughing about a lot when I was watching Die Hard was like, there's always a scene in the movie where they're trying to defuse a bomb. And there's like some dude who's sitting there, he's sweating, uh, sweating profusely, he's nervous, and he gets it down to the red and to the blue wire. He never knows which one to cut. And at the last second, it's like 10, 9, and at the last second, he cuts the, uh, the blue one, never cut the red one. And then the bomb is diffused. Now, if you are dealing with something inflammatory and incendiary, you would be very wise to be very gentle in how you diffused a bomb. Nobody just like takes a bomb, throws it on a table, kicks it around, and says, all right, let me take a look at it, look at it, and just starts whacking away at it. Because if it's, if it's incendiary, inflammatory, you have to be gentle. You have to remove all unnecessary force in order to diffuse it. You still have to diffuse it. You still have to cut a wire, but you are removing all unnecessary force. So in situations that are inflammatory and potentially incendiary in your life, you should remove all unnecessary force. You should still diffuse it, but don't add extra force to it. Simultaneously, there are other situations that require gentleness, not because it's inflammatory, but because the person you're dealing with is just very fragile. Or maybe the situation is fragile. Now, in my house, um, over the past couple of years, when my kids were younger, my job was changing diapers. I've changed thousands of diapers in my life. I'm very good at it. Um, and there are times when, you know, for diaper rash reasons or for discomfort reasons, my sons were very uncomfortable with getting their diaper changed. Now, as a dad who loves them deeply, I could not let them stay in their mess. So, in changing their diapers, I was very gentle, but I was thorough. By being gentle with a baby, all I was doing was removing all unnecessary force in order to accomplish the task, which was making them clean. So even if they had a diaper rash so that I could heal well and they wouldn't get infected or anything like that. It would not have been loving if I was not thorough because they were uncomfortable. It was loving to remove 
all, not some, of the unnecessary force required to do the task. So whether you are dealing with an inflammatory situation or a gentle situation or a fragile situation, we would do very well as followers of Christ, for those of us who want to follow Jesus, to remove all unnecessary force in doing it. Now, I want you to ask yourself that question as you are uh, leading up to, hopefully this week, have some peacemaking conversations. Uh, am I gentle? Is it, am I putting anything, any extra pizzazz on my comments? What is truly necessary for me to say? Not so that you're not thorough, but so that we are uh, truly being peacemakers. So here's the thing that I've found this week in my life. Uh, the, the main thing that we need to be reminded of is that Jesus was gentle with us. When I am tempted to not be gentle with other people, I think I just need to be reminded and to take, to take a hard examination and look at myself and what I believe about God. Do I believe that Jesus loves me because of the good that I have done? Or do I believe that he is gentle and gracious just because he is good and he is love? As Paul says in Romans 5, that while um, many people might venture to die for someone who is godly or doing well, but God demonstrates his love for us in this way. Christ died for the, the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is gentle with you. Jesus is, the only reason any of us could be here today is because God in all of his wisdom and love, he is gentle with us. God does not add extra force to anything in our lives. So we need to rehearse the gospel. Whether you are a people pleaser who's seeking self-preservation, we need to be rehearsed, rehearsing the gospel uh, and repeating the gospel over our lives that Jesus did not seek his own self-preservation when he came. And whether we are struggling and tempted to not be gentle or to be too forceful or to cut people off, we need to be reminded that God is gentle with us. And we are called to speak with grace because we have been saved by grace. But a couple of quick caveats. Number one, everybody is not your obligation. Everybody is not your obligation. Peacemaking assumes that there is proximity in your life. Jesus says these words in Matthew 18, 15, and 16. He says, if your brother or sister sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's a great model, first and foremost. If someone sins against you, go tell them their fault between you and them alone. If he listens to you, you will have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Now, what Jesus is assuming is that this peacemaking process happens in community, that there are people who know you and who know the other person that can be brought into the conversation. When I say this is because we live in a globalized world, that you and I have an infinite number of people we can be in communication with on any given day, and I don't think the task of peacemaking extends to random internet trolls that you have never met and don't know. That would be exhausting and unrealistic. And that might keep you from actually incorporating this into your life. I don't think God is calling you to do that. But Jesus continues. So number one, not everybody is your obligation. But the people who are actually in your community, man, these people are the people that God has given us to be peacemakers with. Secondly, it is not endless. So even with the people that are in proximity with you, it is not the call to endlessly pursue them, um, even if they don't want to listen to what you're saying. So in verse 17, Jesus says this, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. So these are harsh words from Jesus, but Jesus was basically saying, 
they would basically at that point be exiled. They would be an outsider. If you have been gentle, if you have pursued them, if you have been wise in the way you've done it, you've taken other people to help try to make peace in the situation, and if they don't listen, as he says earlier in Matthew 10, shake the dust off of your chancletas and keep it moving. Chancletas mean sandals. So the other last thing that I think is a challenge for us, so um, everybody's not your obligation. It is not endless. And we just don't know how to do it. That's a big thing. We don't know how to be peacemakers in our life, and we're going to give you some practical things. The first thing I want us to think about is just, like, how did your family of origin deal with conflict? How did they deal with conflict in your home? How did grandma and them deal with conflict? In my family, kids were not allowed to have opinions. Like, it doesn't matter what you think. Adults were allowed to be mad, but kids, what, you, what bill in here is in your name? Show me. When you pay one of these, then you can have an opinion about something. Unknowingly, what was formed inside of even me is that it's not okay for me to have an opinion. It's not okay for me to be mad about something. And what that does is it actually leads to me dismissing issues because I'm like, well, I was never allowed. At what age do you, even now, if I were to ask my uncles, nobody cares about you know, what, I, what my belief would be about something. So first, I think we need to take a hard look at how did your family of origin deal with conflict? In some families, it was very explosive, and you need to unlearn that stuff. If we are going to be in a new family of Jesus, we need to handle conflict and peacemaking a whole lot differently than what we've done in the past. So there's a scripture in Ephesians 4.29 that gives us a model for what peacemaking looks like. It says this, no foul language should come out of your mouth. And this is not just talking about cursing. One day we'll do a whole sermon on this. But here's what Paul says. Here's what should come out of your mouth. Only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. So the point of your conversation should be to build up someone in need. Now, why is that so important? Because I'm reading this book right now by Oprah called What Happened to You? And one of the questions she asks over and over again is not what is wrong with them. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? But rather, what happened to them? A lot of the people acting out in your life, they have deficits. There's things that have happened to them in the past that have caused them to behave this way in the future. And just having a little bit of curiosity about what happened to them would help frame and shape how we can have a conversation with them that builds them up because if they are acting out, they are actually in need. They are in need. They are in a deficit, a real deficit, which is causing them to act out. So I want to talk about four things that you can do this week with people in your life to be a peacemaker. So Peacemaking requires speaking graciously, honestly, clearly, and timely. Graciously, do you want to make a point or do you want to win them back to the truth? If all you want to do is make a point, then say what you want to say, clap back, and pat yourself on the back and walk away. But if you want this person to be restored in right relationship with you and others and with God, it requires that we speak to them graciously, uh, with our desire being that for their restoration. The second one is honestly. We mentioned this a little bit earlier. Um, you're lying to people when you say it's not that big of a deal. If it was a big deal, you should say that. If, if you see someone who's done something, if you see somebody behaving in your DNA group or in your growth group who's like wilding out a little bit and you're just downplaying it, no, don't downplay it. Be honest and say, listen, man, this is really scary what you're doing and behaving. Like, that's a really scary thing. I'm afraid for you. 
Part of the way that we win people back is by being honest with them and not downplaying the real effect of their behavior on them, on us, and their relationship with God as well. Another one is clearly. I used to struggle with this a lot. Um, I would talk for 30 minutes, and at the end of the 30 minutes, people would say, I don't get what, like, what? What did you just say? It's like, yeah, you know, because, like, you know Kevin, right? All right, so on Thursday, remember that one dude? And then, like, you're just talking around in circles and circles. So in order to help you, you should spend some time collecting your thoughts in advance of having a conversation. You should not just, like, hop into the conversation, but you should collect your thoughts, write down some notes. Don't be afraid to say, yo, yo you know what? Let me just read this. Let me just read this one part because I want to make sure that I'm really clear about this, exactly what the person did that is harmful or unhealthy in their life so that you could be clear in their lives. And the last one is really, really big, timely. Some of y'all haven't had conversations with people because you just let too much time lapse. And now it's too late to kick up something that happened six months ago. But it might still be bothering you. It might still be plaguing the other person. One thing, to happen, one thing that I've implemented in my life to have timely conversations are it's a great skill to practice as well. I give people notice about what I want to talk to them about. So I'll say, yo, hey, X, Y, Z happened today in the lobby. I would love to talk to you about it. Can you talk at 8.15? I give them a headline of what we're going to talk about. I'm not surprising them. And I'm also not just launching out into a deep conversation that they may or may not be ready for. Sometimes the conversations don't go well, and it's not because of them. It's because you just launched out into a conversation, and they weren't ready for it. So in order to have a timely conversation with people, we'd be very wise to just say, yo, I want to talk to you about this. Tell me when's a good time we can talk about it. It's going to take about 15, 20 minutes. And then that person will tell you the time. You can go back and forth, and then you can have that conversation. So in order for us to be peacemakers, we need to be having gracious, honest, clear, and timely conversations with people. And we do this all because blessed are the peacemakers, for we will be called sons of God. Now, I believe Jesus included that last part that we will be called sons of God because true children resemble their father. And Jesus is our peacemaker. Jesus made peace between us and God through taking, sacrificing his own body in order to accomplish it. Jesus gave up himself so that you and I can have peace with God. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 19, it says this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Even though by, na by nature we were rebelling against God, God sacrificed his own son and now calls us guilt-free and clear to anybody who will lay down our arms of independence and come home in faith. And Jesus says that if you want to resemble me, yes, it's great to know good things. Yes, it's great to have personal piety. But if you really want to resemble me, you should be a peacemaker. Let me pray for us. Uh, Jesus, I'm humbled that you have come to the earth not to get us back, but to bring us back. And you've done it at the cost of your own life. Uh, Jesus, as I think about the people in my life that I need to be a peacemaker with, I pray that you would give me courage to get rid of any pursuit of self-preservation. And I pray that you would give me grace and gentleness so I can pursue it in such a way that I would honor you and glorify you and dignify the image of God in them. Lord, I pray for every brother and sister in here who has some names in their head, uh, conversations they've been avoiding, people they've been avoiding, people they've already cut off. Lord, I pray for new mercies to, uh, to go about tomorrow in a new way. 
Lord, would you give us a passion and a devotion? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.